Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services. Good morning, you guys. Welcome to Hope Church. How are you? It's good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Chris Matley, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're, we're a church that actually meets in three locations. We have one in Aptos here in Soquel and one in Scotts Valley. And I'm part of a pastoral team that cares for all three of those. Um, but my heart is definitely here, and this is where you'll find me on most Sundays. Um, and if you, if you know me well, then you already know this about me. But if you don't, um, uh, let me tell you this about me is that I don't... Um, I don't draw my main income from being a pastor. Actually, I, um, my wife and I own a small business, so you call that being bivocational, meaning I am a pastor, but I support myself uh, through a business. And, um, and I don't talk about it a lot here because I feel like it would be weird if I got up here and I was like promoting my business, you know, that'd be so strange. But I did want to tell you about this because something happened this week, a story that I wanted to share with you, and it makes only would make sense if you knew that I had a day job. Um, and so, the business that my wife and I have, what we do is we, we sell, we have a showroom and we sell remodeling products like cabinets and tile and countertops and that kind of thing. Uh-huh, okay, some remodeling fans there. Um, and so uh, part of my role is I go out to people's houses and I measure and I design uh, kitchens and you know the way the cabinets will all fit. Um, and it's, it's precise work because if I do it wrong, then they don't fit and it's a big disaster, right? And so this week uh, on Friday, which is my normal day off, I'm at, I was at home and I got this call from one of my employees at the shop and he said, we got a big problem. This, I'm, I just got off the phone with this customer, it's so-and-so, you, you designed the kitchen, you sold the cabinets, the cabinets are there, the installers are putting them in and they said it's all wrong, you messed it up, it's a total disaster, they got the wrong things and she's like kind of frantic. I said, give me the number, I'll, 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 let me call her. So I call and. Sure enough, she tells the same story. She goes, she goes, I don't know what to do. She goes, I, you know, I, you seem like a really nice guy, and you seem like you know what you're doing, but they're telling me this. They're pointing the finger right at you and saying, you messed it up. And I said, let me go there, and I'll go check it out, okay? And so I, I hang up with her, and I said, I'll call, I'll call you, in, you know, after I get there. So I, so I drive all the way downtown. This is my day off, you know, like it's... <laughs> It's kind of a bummer, you know, but I get in the car and I drive. And of course, it's like all the way on the west side. So I go all the way down there and I find parking and I, and I walk up and it's a job site. I mean, there's construction debris. There's guys going in and out. I don't know if you've ever been on a job site in Santa Cruz, but, you know, these are blue collar guys. It's, it's rough. Like one of them has his shirt off. There's like music playing. This guy's in, you know, tank tops and it's, it smells like a locker room in this house, you know, and there's debris everywhere, and, and I walk in the front door. Have you ever walked into a room and immediately you know they were just talking trash about you? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, like I walk in and these three guys look up and they look at me and they're, I mean, gruff, rough guys. They look at me and I'm looking at them and they know that I know that they were just talking about me and I know that they know that I know that they were just talking about me and it's so awkward and tense and here's the weird thing about me. I love that. I don't know why. It was just like... I love this moment. I was like, this is great. I go, hey, guys, how's it going over here? And they're like, well, you know, we're having some problems, and I, uh, but I think we're starting to figure it out. And I go, did you follow the plan? And they said, well, I mean, we unboxed everything. We kind of guessed on where it should go. And I said, 
oh, okay. I said, and, and I looked, and as soon as I came into the room, I knew what had happened. There was one big cabinet that by mistake they'd pushed into the corner and it was actually meant to go somewhere else. And once you put one wrong thing in place, the rest of it's a disaster. So they had figured it out right before I got there and they'd taken it out. And I know that because I could see the screw holes from where they had removed it and then put it in the right place. And I, and I looked around and I kind of measured some things. I said, well, it's looking like, I said, did you put that cabinet there to start with? He's like, well, yeah. He goes, darn it, I guess I, I, I screwed up. He didn't say screwed up, he said something else. But, and I said, yep, you did. I said, but hey, look at you're following the plan now. And I think everything's gonna be okay, and this lady's gonna be really happy, and you're doing a great job. And so, you know, in just a couple of minutes, like we were bro hugging, you know what I'm talking about? Like there were you kind of pulling in and ah, you know, like this. And I was like, you guys have a great day, you're doing a great job, keep up the great work. And I left and I called the customer. I said, hey, you know what? Everything's gonna be fine. Everything's working out. They they got this. They got this. And um, and it did, it worked out. And and here's the thing: I got my car and I was driving away, and I stopped. Like I always do in a situation like that, I stopped and I said, God, thanks for meeting me in that place and, and, and working that out. Thank you for doing that. But, but did that, the way that worked out, was that a miracle? Did God perform that miracle? Well, I, I thanked him because I believe he went with me and, and helped work things out. But, but let me ask it this way. Was I unprepared and untested and unready for that moment? Well, no. See, I've been doing this for 17 years. And at the beginning, when I first started out, I made some painful, expensive, embarrassing mistakes. I did. And I still think about some of them. But this wasn't one of them. Because I'd gone through those things to prepare me for that. Right? And I, you know, I, I wanted us to consider this question and have this question in our mind as we, as we approach the scriptures and, and read the story that we're going to read today. And the question is this. Have you, have you ever gone through a challenging, difficult season in your life but later, you look back and you realize you were actually grateful for what it did for you, and what it, what it taught you, and, and where it brought you. We're in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you have a Bible and you want to just kind of keep it open there, you're welcome to. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Last week, uh, Tim kicked off our series that we're in, um, uh, and the, the, the series is called Sustained, and it's a meditation on the life of David. And, and last week, Tim was talking about how David had been called and anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel, right? Even though Israel already had a king and his name was Saul. And this week in, in chapter 17, we're going to look at um, the story of David and Goliath. Now, this is one of the most recognized stories in all of the Old Testament. In fact, I would say there's a very high probability that if you're sitting here, you've probably already heard a teaching or a message on this this topic, maybe multiple. I, I feel like I've probably heard 500, right? Is there anything else to say? And here's, here's the deal. What I want to do is, you know, 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's 58 verses. It's pretty long. If I just sat here and read it, it it's pretty long. And I could do that. I think what I want to do, though, is because we're so familiar with the story, I want to just tell you the story. I want to just tell it to you. And then I want to invite you into a way of looking at it in a different way, a different way than you have maybe before, okay? So here's, let me set the stage for you. It's 3,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. We are in the Shephelah, okay? The Shephelah is a, uh, in fact, uh, you want to throw that map up there, Richard, that first slide? There we go. So over here at the, on the coast, uh, today where modern city of Tel Aviv is, over here on the coast uh, is kind of where the Philistines 
ruled and reigned during th this period 3,000 years ago. Okay? They had the coastal plains. They were a seafaring people. The Philistines were very sophisticated. They had iron tools in a Bronze Age. They had sophisticated language written and spoken. They had culture. They had powerful walled cities. Over here were the Israelites. Okay? They had Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Hebron. And they were in the mountains. But in between, this section right here in the middle is called the Shephelah. And it's a series of uh, valleys and rivers and streams, very rich. Uh, my wife and I have been there. We traveled through there. And it's beautiful. There's oak forests and vineyards. It's very rich and lots of good grazing land. Well, 3,000 years ago, the Philistines, they had their eye on the land of Judah, and they decided to do something about it. And so they led their army through the Shephelah there, and Saul got wind of it, and he brought his army down from Jerusalem, and they met right there in the Valley of Elah. That's where we are, the Valley of Elah, okay? And they came together in this valley, and, and the, the history says that they were camped on one side, and the Philistines were camped on the other, and in between is this shallow valley. In fact, I have a picture of that as well. You want to see this picture? Check this out. So this is right down here. It's not very big. A lot of times you read about these things and we just have this grand, it's just, they were just right there. And the Philistines were right over there. They probably could have waved at each other, right? Hey there, there's a stream going through. Right down here is where they would have gone to war. Up there at the top, see the reason they're deadlocked is nobody wants to go into the valley. When you have two armies on a, that both have the high ground, the other one would have to make themselves vulnerable to go down in the valley. So they're both just facing each other across the way. Okay, and that's where our story picks up. The Philistines would send their best fighter down into the valley. He was a giant, and he was fully armored, and he would issue a challenge to the Israelites to single combat. This was not uncommon in these days for two warriors to fight it out, and then, every, and then it would decide the whole thing, and everybody gets to go home without killing each other, right? But as this carries on, um, the giant begins to taunt the armies of Israel up on the hill. He walks out in the valley and he makes fun of them, and he ridicules them, and he mocks them. And this goes on for 40 days. That's a significant number. We'll come back to that. And then one day, a young shepherd boy comes to the king, to King Saul. He's there to bring food to his three brothers who are in the army. And he hears this taunt. So he's up on this, this hill here, and he looks down, and he hears this, this mocking voice from this giant. And the young shepherd boy says, I, I will fight him. How dare he speak? the armies of Israel that way. I'll go down and fight him. And at first, the king, Saul, he refuses. He refuses the boy, but the boy insists. Are you familiar with the story so far? Does this sound, sound right? Yeah? Sound familiar? The boy insists, and Saul gives the boy his own armor, but the boy declines. He says, I'm not going to wear that. I don't need it. And instead, he picks up five stones, and he goes down to the valley floor. He doesn't walk, but he runs the valley floor, right? And the giant cries out, who is this that comes at me with sticks? Maybe his eyesight wasn't good. He only had one stick. Who is this that comes at me with sticks? Come to me so that I can feed your flesh to the birds of the air. And the shepherd boy, he uses his sling and he hurls a stone that hits the giant in the head. Now, maybe, maybe the giant was killed instantly or maybe he's unconscious. Either way, he falls over and it doesn't matter because the boy runs over, climbs on top of him, and takes his own sword and cuts off his head. This is in the story. I'm not making this up. This is, this is in the story. And, and the Philistines are up on a ridge, and they see all this happen. 
It's not far away. I mean, they, oh, did he just cut off his head? Yes, he did. Um, and they panic. They freak out. And they begin to fall back, and it turns into a run. And, and the Israelites, they give chase, and they utterly destroy the panicking Israelite, uh, the Philistines because it's very hard to fight on the run if you're the one running away. And, and it, it says that they left bodies all the way down the Shephelah, all the way down to the coast. The Israelites totally uh, destroyed their army. This is a great story. It's, it's got highs and lows. It's a great story. Unfortunately, most of what we think about this story, the way we interpret the story is actually wrong. Can I get that picture of that felt board? If you came up in church at all and you went to Sunday school in the 80s or the early 90s, you might have seen something like this. I know I did. And this is, this is what we reduced the story of the giant and the shepherd boy down to. Right? Here's some guys up here, a little army. Here's some sheep. Here's this big hulking giant. Look at David down here. That kid is sassy, isn't he? Look at him. He's just like, mm, mm, you know. And he's got his little pack. Look at this slingshot. That is a child's toy, right? You got, you got Saul up here. I, don't, I think this is a guy from HR maybe. He's telling Saul, like, you let a minor go out? Do you know the kind of liability that opens this up for? Here's, uh, here's Goliath. I guess that's uh, after the stone but before the, uh, right? This is what we've done. We've turned this into almost like a, a child's story. And, and, and there's two things that we get wrong about this story. There's two things. First, this is not an underdog story. In fact, the term David and Goliath story, if you hear that in popular culture, what does that mean? If someone says, oh, it was a real David and Goliath situation, what does that mean? It means an outmatched underdog triumphing over a superior opponent, right? If you hear that in sports or in business, you're familiar with that, right, that, that term. And that's what this picture would seem to communicate. But when you read the actual story and the context, you, you realize that this is not what happened. David was not a vulnerable and sheltered child. In fact, he was not a small child at all. He was a young man. And Saul would not have offered a baby his armor, right? He would not have offered a toddler his armor. He was a young man. In fact, Saul... The real miracle here is that Saul put his entire kingdom in the hands of this young man. He must have seen something in him because uh, he bet the whole thing on him. Remember, Philistines, the Philistines' uh, challenge was, let's come out and settle this one-on-one. -on -one. And the loser loses everything. And Saul said, I'm going to bet on this guy. This is not a child. In fact, let, let me read you just a little bit from the text, just a little bit. This is in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. It says, Saul replied to David, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. He says, you're only a young man, right? Not a child. And he has been a warrior from his youth. In other words, he's been doing this longer than you. Well, that's what Saul thinks. But David said to Saul, no, no, you're wrong. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by, by its hair and struck it and killed it. That's, who here has grabbed a lion and killed it? Anyone? No? Okay. All right. That's right. I, I saw a bear one time in the, uh, uh, when I was hiking with my dad. It was like this little mama bear and two little cubs. Whew. Yeah, I was terrified. And, the, you know, the thing was only like this big. This guy's grabbing lions and killing them. 
Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hands of the Philistines. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. He was convinced, right? David was also an accomplished slinger. And he operated one of the most deadly projectile weapons of the Bronze Age. It is not a child's toy. This, when you do the research, there's, there's tapestries, there's, there's archaeological evidence that, that people that operated slings were deadly. I mean, there's, there's evidence, there's historical record of people that could operate this weapon and, and shoot, shoot down birds in flight. Furthermore, the stones that are dug up in the Valley of Hila are a type of basalt, extremely dense. Ballistically speaking, these, these stones, if you, if you spin a sling at six or seven revolutions per second, which is pretty average for, a, um, for an accomplished slinger, they would have had the stopping power of a 45 caliber bullet. Yeah, this is, this is not, he's not playing around. When he looked out there and saw that giant and said, I'll take him, he knew he could. That's why he ran towards the giant. He did it in, in flight while moving, and he hit him with a sling. One shot, first try, knocked him over. Here's the deal. This is what we don't read correctly about the story. Goliath never stood a chance. He didn't have a chance. He was outmatched. He was outgunned from the moment that David set foot on the battlefield. David gave God glory for his victory. But does that mean that it was a miracle? Does that mean that David was unprepared, untested, and unready for that moment? No. No. Just like in my story at the beginning, I didn't slay any giants, but, you know, I, I walked into a room where people were against me, and I overcame it because I had prepared for that moment. Was this Goliath thing the beginning of David's story? Was this the beginning of the story? No. How about last week when we heard that he was called by Samuel to be the king of Israel? Was that the beginning of his story? No. No. David wrote Psalms, and when we read the Psalms, we get to hear the history of his life painted in poetry. Check out this, check out this little image from Psalms 51 that David paints about himself. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And the English translates that in a kind of a clumsy way, but the, the Hebrew says... Um, surely I was born into an unsavory situation. There's a lot of people that uh, historians take from this that, where they think that perhaps David was born to a woman that was not Jesse's wife. You know, perhaps a, um, uh, adultery or, or, or um, maybe even a prostitute. In fact, when you see, last week we read about this, when you come across David first in the story of Samuel, he, where is he? He's off and away, right? He's, he's been separated from his family. And he says in Psalms chapter 69, I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. He said, you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. God was preparing him from the beginning for what he would face in his life. This is a little phrase I like to say when I'm talking to people about these kind of things. God doesn't waste anything. The things that you've walked through, the fire and the darkness, God is using those things, and he's preparing you for something. He said in Psalm 69, those who sit at the gate, they mock me, and I'm the song of the drunkards. In his hometown, he was made fun of, he was marginalized, he was ostracized, but it was preparation. 
for what God knew he needed to overcome. David came onto that battlefield and he was prepared for the moment. In fact, this is what David said to Goliath. Do you want to hear? It's pretty awesome. He says, he comes onto the battlefield. Apparently, he said all this while he was running towards him, which is awesome. But he says, you come against me with the sword and the spear, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you all into our hands. I'm sure Goliath did not expect to hear that from a young man running at him while swinging a sling, right? He never saw it coming. And my favorite part is that when you read to the end of the chapter, you can, you can check this out later, but you read to the end of the chapter and David goes home to Jerusalem and it just casually mentions that he's still carrying his head around. <laughs> that, is, that is so intense. Like he's just, he goes home and he's like, hey mom, check it out, you know. Maybe that part didn't happen, I don't know. The second thing that we get wrong about this story is that this story is not about you. It's not about me. The story of Goliath in, you know, in Christian teaching, when we hear this story, we often just immediately go to, it's a metaphor. What are the giants in your life, right? How many times have you heard that, right? I've probably taught it that way, you know, but I, I've come to see it differently. And the way I, I've come to see it is, is I stop looking at it through my Western eyes. See, in Western storytelling, the hero is always us. If you go and watch a movie about... Um, Luke Skywalker or Peter Parker, or you read a book or a, uh, a novel or you watch a television show, we're supposed to see ourselves in the main character. That's Western storytelling. We call it representation, right? You, you see yourself in the character. In fact, if, if you're watching a, a show on TV and it's really gripping to you, what do you say? The characters are so engaging. They're so relatable, right? Because you relate to them. That's Western storytelling. This is not Western storytelling. Western storytelling is about you. Eastern storytelling is about a hidden truth being revealed. So this is Eastern storytelling. What or who is the hidden truth being revealed? When you read the story of David, you begin to see the hidden truth. The person that's being revealed is Jesus. It's Jesus. People that study the scriptures, they call this, they call David a Christological figure, meaning he he, there's parts of his life, there's rhythms, there's patterns, there's echoes that represent the coming of Jesus. And this is one of those. If David represents the Christ, then who does Goliath represent? Who did Jesus have victory over in this life? Death. Goliath is death. You know that term, the gospel, we call the gospel of the good news, right? The gospel of the good news, we call it you know, the word gospel comes from the Greek word. It already means good news. So it's like saying the good news of the good news. It's like when we say chai tea. Chai means tea. Tea tea. You want some tea tea? Right? Gospel means good news. But it's a very particular kind of good news. If you were in a village and your people were at war with someone else and someone came and, and tacked something up in the village and says, I have information about how the war is going. It's a gospel. That would mean we're winning. We're winning. It's, it's good news about a military victory over an enemy. The gospel of the good news is that Jesus conquered death. That's the gospel. 
That's what the good news is. So in Hebrews, the author writes about it in, in Hebrews chapter 2, and here's how, here's how they, they write about it. They said, since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, since we're human beings, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those, check this out, free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus has the victory because he conquered death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And if you remember uh, what we talked about a few weeks ago, we are the descendants, the spiritual descendants of Abraham. We're part of that family, part of God's family. For this reason, he had to make, make like them, uh, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might take atonement for the sins of the people. That means in the places where we've done wrong, Jesus became human, experienced death, and then conquered death in our place. That is the good news. And we see that echoed in the story of David. There is a battle, friends. There's a battle. And it does involve us. But we are not David. Jesus is the hero of the story. He's the story. And he's already defeated the villain. Here's the thing. As we live in a particular moment in history where we get to look back and we say, Jesus has already done it. He's already won the victory. That's good news. Amen? So in the story, if we're not David, if Jesus is David, then we're merely the soldiers in the army of the Lord chasing down the last of the enemy. It's a mop-up operation, right? We're just following through on what he has already done. And you see that in the rhythms of our life. When in the places where, where we begin to surrender, Savannah talked about this when she was praying during worship, in the places where we lay down, where we surrender to him and his lordship, his victory then becomes our victory. And we see it. We experience it. We know his victory as it works in our lives. Have you ever had that moment in your life where you said, I can't do this on my own. God, come and help me. What's happening there is his victory is becoming yours as you surrender to his lordship. There is a spiritual battle that we're all engaged in. But this story right here, when we read this story, it exists to remind us of this right here. And this is my, my big idea for today, is that the battle has already been won and it belongs to Jesus. When you experience some moment of victory in your life, when you come up and over some kind of challenge in your life. On the other side of it, stop, open your hands and say, God, thank you for meeting me in that place. Thank you for the way that you prepared me for that moment. Thank you for the hardships that I experienced that helped me navigate what I just went through. And thank you for the victory that you've given me by being victorious first. That's what we do. The battle has already been won and it belongs to Jesus. We're just walking out the last parts of the story. So Jesus takes on the greatest foe of all time, death. It's the enemy that none of us can defeat on our own, right? Does anybody have a plan apart from Jesus for defeating death? Anyone? No? Nothing yet? Still working on it? He defeats the greatest foe of all time. But he came ready. Was he unprepared and untested and unready for that moment? No, he wasn't. We read about it in the gospel story. He'd already met that foe 
in the desert. Do you remember when Jesus, after he was baptized, what happened? He went out into the desert. How many days was he in the desert? 40. That's right. And for 40 days, the devil taunted Jesus, just like Goliath taunted the Israelites for 40 days. And Jesus overcame. Saul tried to put his armor on David, but David knew he had to do it his own way. The thief on the cross told Jesus, if you're really the son of God, call down your heavenly armies and destroy the Romans. But Jesus knew he had to do it his own way. The backdrop of this story is, is very physical. It's very real. This is not metaphor. This is history. But it looks forward to a time when the followers of the king, that's you and I, would fight a spiritual war. Our, our enemies are no longer people. It's not our role to fight people. But there is a war. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6 like this. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not us versus them. But it's against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. That is our battle. Often our battle to the natural eye looks like fear, anxiety, confusion, depression. It's the things that we come against every day. And the voices that come against us, like the ones that came against David, to overwhelm us with lies about who we are and who God is and what our role is in it. But, but here's, here's how you can defend against that. And I want to leave you with this. Um, this is where I want to uh, kind of uh, land the plane here. Is, is We have two ways that I know of that work really well to defend against these kind of spiritual attacks and to, to walk in the victory that Jesus has given us. And, and the first one is this. Surround yourself with godly people who have wisdom and experience and give them permission to speak into your life. That's not to say, ask people to tell you what to do. It's to give permission to people that, that love God and love you. Hey, speak into my life when you see that I'm, that I'm flailing, when you see that I'm struggling. I, I wanna open the door to you to do that. It's an incredible tool. This last week, last Sunday afternoon, um, Amy and I had a little, uh, this is going to get real for a second, okay? Amy and I had a little disagreement, my wife Amy and I. I don't even remember what it was about, but it spiraled pretty quick. And we, you know, that night, uh, we, we didn't work it out, which is always a mistake. You got to work it out before, before the sun goes down. That's really good advice. It's not my advice. It's, it comes from someone else, but we didn't. And Monday, I just went off to work, and it just, like, it didn't go, there was a couple of texts shared back and forth, some things said that shouldn't have been said, and by Monday night, like, I was just, we were in a, we were fighting, we were having a fight, is what was happening, and, um, and, to, and so that night, we, we, again, we didn't work it out, and have you ever, if you're married, have you ever gone to bed with your spouse, and like, you're in a fight, and you just, you're like pulling the covers in a passive-aggressive, like, you know, like one inch at a time, just, you know what I mean, it was like one of those, I was like, oh, you know, it was one of those, good night, I love you, darn it. And um, Tuesday morning, here's what happened, Tuesday morning, this is the point of the story, Tuesday morning, I get a call from my friend Danny Bennett. I pick up the phone, and he's like, hey, bro, how are you doing? So I'm, I'm good, I'm doing fine, how are you doing? He goes, well, our wives are texting. <laughs> Which is a way of saying, you can stop your lying face now because I already know. So, like, I was like, oh, yeah, well, yeah. 
you know, and, and, you know, and he prayed for me, and, I, and we worked it out. I stopped being selfish, and I went home, and, you know, we worked it out, and everything's good. It's good. Surround yourself with godly people who have wisdom, and give them permission to speak in your life. And the second one is this. Don't ask for people to pray for you later. Don't ask for people to pray for you later. Hey, you know, hey, how are you doing, man? Um, it's a tough week. If you think about me, pray for me later. Pray for me later. Don't do that. Ask for people to pray for you right now. I'm having a tough time. Would you just say a prayer for me? Right? And likewise, when someone says, you know, I'm struggling a little bit. I'm, I, I'm messed up. I got this problem. I'm not sure what to do. Don't say, I'll be praying for you this week. Say, I'm going to pray for you right now. Is that okay? We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, we'd love to help you find Hope. Please check out discoverhope.church and click connect or just email us at info at discoverhope.church. Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers and donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the Give option on our website or text any amount to 831-800-2060. Thanks again for tuning in.